0: East.co. Last year we shared a mini-series called Crypto for Institutions to cover the basics of the rapidly evolving ecosystem from an investor's perspective. Through conversations with Eric Peters at One River, Michael Sonnenschein from Grayscale, Seth Jins from CoinFund, and Ari Paul from Blocktower, we covered the case for Bitcoin, a path to access investing beyond Bitcoin, and trading strategies. Over the next three weeks, we'll dive in a little deeper with Crypto for Institutions 2. This six-part mini-series explores where we are today in the rapidly evolving world of crypto and blockchains. We'll share conversations with the leading allocator to the space, four top managers, and a key service provider. The mini-series is strategic in nature Allowing us to learn without requiring technical lingo and expertise. For those interested in a more technical exploration, I'd encourage you to listen to Web3 with A16Z, Colossus's Web3 Breakdowns, and the Pomp Podcast. Crypto for Institutions 2 is brought to you by Anchorage Digital. Anchorage Digital is the premier crypto partner for institutions. It offers custody, trading, financing, staking, governance, and the first federally chartered digital asset bank, all with unparalleled security. With support for a wide variety of digital assets, Anchorage is trusted by hedge funds, venture capital firms, banks, family offices, fintechs, treasuries, and asset managers. Learn more at anchorage.com cap. That's anchorage.com C-A-P. We kick off crypto for institutions, Two with Marcos Varenas. Marcos is a partner at Accolade Partners, a $4.4 billion venture fund-to-funds whose founder Joel Caden appeared on the show earlier this year. Marcos manages $1 billion in blockchain fund-to-fund assets across liquid and venture strategies. He's one of the most well-regarded allocators in the space, having created and led the practice at Cambridge Associates before leaving to become a principal, first at Evanston Capital Management and then at Accolade. Our conversation covers Marcos's discovery of crypto while at Cambridge, building a formal research practice, and following institutional interest in the space. We then turn to his transition from consultant to the buy side of the buy side, and his approach to manager selection, due diligence, portfolio construction, and oversight. We close with Marcos' perspective on the recent drawdown, valuation, and long-term outlook. Before we get going, I have the distinct pleasure of offering you a rare opportunity to join the 1%ers. You see, around 1% of listeners have offered up their feedback with a review and rating on iTunes. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment and seize the opportunity to join the 1%ers by hopping on iTunes, rating the show, and writing a brief review. It'll help other people find the show, and I thank you for it. Please enjoy my conversation with Marcos Varemis in the first episode of Crypto for Institutions 2. Marcos, great to see you.
1: Great to see you, Ted.
0: I thought it'd be interesting to talk about how you go from a traditional consulting role for many years into becoming the consultant crypto expert at Cambridge Associates.
1: (laughs) That's a long story, and it starts in uh, early 2018. There were a couple of things happening while I was at Cambridge Associates then. Number one... Clients had started noticing what's going on with Bitcoin and Ethereum and the price appreciation and so on. So they were asking questions about it. At that time, the questions were more theoretical. They weren't willing to act, but they were just curious to see what's going on. So we had to have an opinion. That's number one. Number two, in the 2016 17 traditional venture capital vintages, you saw some managers having exposure to blockchain, either blockchain companies or even Bitcoin on some occasions. So we also realized that we actually have exposure to these things. It's minimal at this point, but we actually have exposure. So when you have exposure and clients are asking what's going on, you better sit down and understand and have an opinion. So uh, I raised my hand at the time, the reason being that I had a very deep interest personally in the space. Where did
0: that deep personal interest come from?
1: Well, I am Greek, so I was born and raised in Greece. I think that gives you some context. There's what the major crisis in Greece that happened during the European debt crisis that started in 2012 or so until 2017. Although I wasn't in Greece, I was in the UK and the US. My family was there. So I started seeing things that I could never have imagined. For example, you had government debt overnight, being written down 75% or so. Just imagine if you woke up tomorrow on your treasuries, your safe assets were marked down by 75%. And then you had capital controls in 2017. I remember flying from London and giving my mom some extra cash because she couldn't get too much cash out of an ATM every week. You saw all these things. And at the same time, I bumped into Bitcoin. One of my Greek friends suggested I read a book called Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos. And it was eye-opening. I realized that there's a decentralized system of computers that's actually functioning, that transfers value on the internet, outside of traditional financial rails, and without any intermediary. So, immediately I was like, oh wow, we should have had some Bitcoin next to our Greek government bonds, it would have helped a lot. So that's what kickstarted my interest. So it's deeply personal.
0: When you started taking this on for Cambridge Associates from that interest, how did that play out? There were other people who were looking at the
1: space, and maybe had actually met a couple of the managers back then, like Chain and had spoken with clients about them. But there was no centralized effort at Cambridge. So what I tried to do is, first of all, gather all the information that was out there that we already had, gather it in a centralized way and figure out what we have, what we know, what we don't know. So that was the first step. And it was just me in the beginning. It was more like a project. From there, I started gathering all this information. We created an email list where many Cambridge consultants signed up for, and we exchanged ideas over there. So that was really helpful. We also read several Medium articles. We started reaching out to the managers back then that weren't that many, trying to figure out what they're doing, how they're thinking. Spoke with entrepreneurs, spoke with some of the generalist VCs who had been investing in the space. And my belief was, after speaking with all these folks, that something important was happening and that we shouldn't be dismissing it at all. And despite the fact that Many of our hedge fund guys were saying that this is a bubble, which it was. Several of these very highly regarded venture capital folks, like Andreessen Horowitz or USV, were considering this to be potentially as big as the internet. So you need to take notice.
0: So, what happened from your initial research in your couple of remaining years at Cambridge on the client side where people were paying attention?
1: Yeah. So, initially, it was just very, I would say, limited interest from clients, right? I mean, it was back in 2018, if I look back, maybe 10 to 12 Cambridge clients, and Cambridge has a 1,000 clients or so or more, were interested in potentially investing something in the space. So we started by underwriting a manager in the middle of 2018. That was the first crypto-dedicated fund we did. It was a brand name. And that was an easy one for some of these guys to invest in as a first step. However, from 2018 to 2020, another two years that I was there at Cambridge, it started evolving and you went from brand names to crypto native managers that are now some of the blue chip names that people are investing in. You saw some institutions making a second commitment and a third commitment. By the time I left in 2020, there was a substantial amount of capital from Cambridge Clients, but very small relative to the size of the firm. From what I see and hear today and from where I sit today, this has changed a lot. I mean, there's a lot of institutional capital in the space today. But I'd say we underwrote five to six managers while I was there, and we had a dozen or so institutions
0: invest. If there were... 1% of Cambridge's client base back then even expressed some interest. If you were to guess today, what percentage of a large client base do you think actually has an investment in the space?
1: Yeah, I don't have the info. Cambridge would have it right now, but I would say there's probably 5x from then at least. Like I'm taking a guess here in terms of client number. In terms of dollars, probably 10x or 20x. Because what happened is initially there were very few people willing to do really small checks. Now there are more institutions willing to do larger checks. So I think, and from what we see here at Accolade, there has been a very substantial interest by institutions. And if you ask me why, I think the reason is that folks realize that this is really one of the fastest growing categories of technology and venture capital. It is extremely risky, but on the other hand, they have close to zero exposure to it. So I think it dawned on numerous institutions that they should have some exposure to it. And even a small percentage of their portfolios adds up to
0: a lot of capital in a small space. The crypto world's evolved where you have the ICO boom back in 2017, and now there's equity investments, there's liquid tokens, there's venture When you have spoken to clients, where do they position their crypto blockchain investments in their portfolios? I think the vast majority
1: of them are placing this in their venture capital allocations at this point. There are some who during the years have said, should I put Bitcoin in my real assets allocation or should I put some of this stuff in the hedge fund bucket? Because some of these funds are open-ended even though they take a venture approach given the early liquidity of tokens but i think at this point it is considered a sub allocation to venture capital by the vast majority of institutions and it's just a much more volatile subset of venture capital because there are, there's early liquidity you know portfolios start having marks they go up and
0: down but but people have become more comfortable with that i think So I know in the last two years, you left Cambridge and you're on the principal side now at Accolade. And before we dive into how you think about investing in managers in the space, I'd love to hear what's been different for you about being really an investment principal compared to a researcher at Cambridge. It's quite different.
1: When I was a researcher at Cambridge, I had this, first of all, unbiased, let's say, neutral view of the entire industry. I spoke with everyone. Gathered knowledge and tried to put it down on paper. I did obviously underwrite some managers, so I did have skin in the game in that sense because when you underwrite managers and clients invest, you're ultimately responsible. But I think being on the principal side, number one, I have a lot of my own capital invested, you know, as a GP. Number two, I'm focused on 100% on. Constructing a portfolio here with a team, with a Tulanaram here, and day in day out, we're trying to figure out what the best choices are and how to put a portfolio together. So I would say there's more skin in the game in this role, and it's all about blockchain and crypto for me. If this thing goes well, I will do well. If it doesn't, I won't. Yeah. <laughs>
0: there's no way out. <laughs> there's a lot happening in the space, and If you take your many years of investment insight and then apply it, how have you thought about philosophically, like how do you want to approach the crypto blockchain world in terms of the types of managers that you'd like to invest in and the portfolios you'd like to build? There are
1: two chapters here. There's today and there's 2018, and these are very two different situations. Because today it's much easier to construct a portfolio than in 2018. Why is it much easier? Because at this point during the 2015-2019 period, you had this core group of what I would now call elite managers emerge in the space. There were very few managers back then. They went into an open space, an empty street, let's say, and they started funding all these startups and they, they created these amazing track records. And fast forward to today, you know, obviously there are network effects and moats around their early activity and they're winning more deals. It's easier for them to win deals than new entrants on average. So all you need to do today, I think, or at least to a large extent, because they're newcomers too, is to try to invest in some of these elite blue chip managers. You know their track records. You know who they are. The entrepreneurs know them. They all mention the same people. And these folks are the ones that the institutional crowd are now investing in or trying to invest in because they're capacity constraint too.
0: So you may not want to say the names, but if I threw out an A16Z, a Paradigm, a Multicoin, I imagine there are a bunch of others. How many managers would you say are in that mix of those sort of considered elite today in the space?
1: I would say there are about 15 to 20 at this point, with maybe 10 being the elite, elite, like League One, at least in the perceptions of people. I do have to say, though, that some of these elite firms of 2016, 17, 18, 19 have also grown very large. And that's something noteworthy and important because when you have a fund size of a 100 million or 200 or 300, and then you have a fund size of a billion or more, it's a different ball game you're playing. So I think that. For the vast majority of these elite firms of 2018, 2019 have become substantially larger, so they're playing a little bit of a different ballgame at this point. That's something folks should be aware of, I think. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm
0: just saying it's a little different. So if you look at where these managers came from, what are the different genotypes of the managers in the space?
1: That's a great question. I think the best way to answer it is from the 2018 lens, because you'll see where they came from. At this point, many of these guys are considered experts. They've been in the space for a while, made extraordinary returns, and nobody remembers or cares about their backgrounds. But back in 2018, when I was first meeting with several of these funds, outside of Polychain and Andreessen, and Pantera and a couple of funds that were in the space really early. There were several folks who were just entering in 2018 and their backgrounds were all over the place. There was folks like Ben Foreman from Parafy Traditional Finance, right? KKR. There were entrepreneurs like Kyle and Tushar in Austin. There were former early Coinbase employees. Olaf is one such case, but there were others that were emerging in 2018. There were some generalist VCs who were leading or starting to lead some of the crypto investments in these funds who had decided to leave and do it on their own, like Alex Pack, for example, at Bain Ventures. There were dropouts out of college. There were people dropping careers from tech and finance, operators. I think this was an open field of opportunity. And at the time, it was open to everyone. And the design space was massive. So you had people from all walks of life. With that said, there was also like the electric capital folks that had strong angel track records and had been investing in the space really early on personally. But back then, you know, you had much less information or concrete information to build out conviction on some of these funds. It was more about, I would say, are they thought leaders? Are they writing interesting things? Are they thinking through this in a way that makes sense to me? Are they people who believe in it, who have grit, and who are going to stay there and have skin in the game? It was more of these soft parameters that you were looking at back then. Today, you have experts at this point. I mean, at this point, many of these guys are now, they know the crypto space inside out, and they're considered experts.
0: How similar or different is that soft skill underwriting to what you would have done? with managers prior to your time studying crypto? It was super different. I spent 13 years at Cambridge total, and I spent my first
1: seven doing hedge fund investing, so researching hedge fund managers and putting hedge fund portfolios together. Back then, this was a mature industry, even in 2006 when I joined Cambridge, and there were track records. Even people leaving firms had track records from other firms. There was much more to base your work on. You could do quantitative analytics, reference calls, and everything else. But with crypto, almost all of it was soft. And it felt as if you were taking a much riskier bet than you would when underwriting a traditional manager. So all we did back then was speak with people, understand how they think, do reference calls, figure out whether they have the personality and the grit and the passion around the space to be around for the long term. And putting these three pieces together, you then made a decision. And of course, diversification would help as well.
0: So what does that diligence process look like today when there's a lot more information and activity that's happened over the last few years?
1: Yeah, I think now you have track
0: records and you have portfolio
1: construction information as well. And I would say you also have a much longer trail of references and and opinions on these folks. So we do all sorts of things here at Accolade. There's an entire process around it. But I would say some of the key things are referencing. So that's something you do a lot. You try to speak with many entrepreneurs. That's probably more important, substantially more important than speaking with LPs, I would say, or GPs. You learn what people perceive to be their strengths and weaknesses, how they've evolved over time, because these things change. And you learn things about their organizations, about the younger people there. You put the pieces and the puzzle together. It's much easier today. That's number one. Number two, you have track records. So you can see hey, how did these guys construct their portfolios? Did they have high ownership relative to fund size? Did they have one 1,000x outcome drive the entire portfolio, which is great. However, is it replicable going forward? Or did they construct a high ownership type of fund relative to fund size that has had substantial odds of success, even at much lower multiple outcomes? So you have just much more information now. With that said, it's still a super young space. So if you ask anybody in traditional venture or traditional hedge funds, they will tell you, I don't know how to underwrite this space. They only go back to 2018.
0: So there's a lot of things you hear about communication, say a Discord discussion group in and around an NFT. And I'm curious, how much do you pay attention to what's happening with the managers in their day-to-day work as part of your assessment?
1: I think it's super important because being in Discord groups and chats and Telegram chats is part of the due diligence process here. Like it's an essential part of the due diligence process. So we often like to see managers who, even if they're older, which there aren't that many, but even if they're older and are more mature, they have younger people on the team who spend their entire day gathering information in these channels. So we certainly assess that. And I think most of the memos we've actually seen from these funds, I would say that a large amount of information in these memos is gathered from these channels. So if somebody is investing in NFTs and is not plugged into the discords and communities, it's a big question mark. How do you have special insights here? What is it that you're basing your decisions on? What type of information? So to make a long answer short, we look for people who are in the flow, but not in the noise.
0: How do you think about the different ways people can get exposure and construct portfolios in this space?
1: There are several ways to do it. There's, as you know, there are venture capital funds, there are hedge funds, there are long only funds. There's direct exposure through Bitcoin, ETH, large cap, DeFi, etc. Maybe I should mention there's also that whole ARB and market neutral space, which is a separate thing, I would say, from the long only exposure. But it is a part of crypto. So you have so many options as an investor. The vast majority so far have opted to take the venture capital approach. But there have been others who have taken an approach of, let me buy Bitcoin ETH not paying any fees, it's a good beta proxy for the industry. And in fact, Ted, if you look at how Ethereum performed over the past few years, it's beat most funds, net of fees. So some folks have opted for that approach. And then people who value liquidity substantially more and who want to have access to it in the bull market have opted more for the open-ended types of funds. In the end, I think it's up to the investor and their circumstances, right, on how they want to play this. Why do you think
0: most have opted for the venture capital approach?
1: I think there are good reasons for it and bad reasons for it. The bad reason being that you think this is venture capital and all my structures are closed end in venture capital. Hence, I have to do closed end because this is part of venture capital. Even though there's early liquidity and these folks are in certain cases sitting, 80% of their portfolios are tokens after three years. I think that's not a good reason. It's more a how do I classify things type of reason. The good reasons are the following. Number one, the way these closed-end funds work is they draw capital over time, right? So you kind of average into the space naturally. Of course, you could do it yourself with an open-ended fund in theory, but this way, the manager calls when they find an interesting deal and you, you invest over a period of, in theory, of two years or so. It's been a year cycle so far. But that's the averaging in part. That's number one. Number two, you get more early stage. So just to be clear, you know, if you go into venture structures, on average, you go in more into early stage, which means pre-seed, seed series A, pre-launch tokens and equity type of deals. and the upside is probably higher there it's also riskier in some ways but uh, so the good reasons are you average in over time you invest earlier stage and you're locked because you're locked you won't make any bad decisions in terms of timing <laughs> you're going to find out 10 years later how you did and it takes out that behavioral instinct of selling at the worst possible time and buying at the worst possible time.
0: It's interesting that it takes out that instinct for the allocator investing in a fund. But as you mentioned, a lot of even venture investments say that a manager would make in this ecosystem get to a token stage that trades relatively quickly. And we know that it's an incredibly volatile area. So I'm kind of curious what's happened with managers' behavior when there's so much volatility, even if they're effectively venture investments, but there's still a traded price attached to it?
1: Yeah. So we have a precedent from the 2018 vintage, and we've looked at that actually. There are broadly two types of managers from that vintage who have fully baked now portfolios that are mostly tokens at this point in terms of value and that large percentage of their portfolios are unlocked and they can actually sell if they want. The first category is folks who have distributed a lot of capital back already. And that group has some, it ranges from 4DX to 10X, 5X, these sorts of numbers you you see. And these are all cash back to investors from the sale of those tokens. There are others who have opted for a different approach, either returning 1x or 1.5x or maybe 2x the capital just to de-risk the investors and then hold long-term. And I think that's been a larger group. And of course, their portfolios go up and down wildly every quarter. However, if you speak with them, they will tell you these returns are going to compound over a 5 to 10-year period. We don't care about this quarterly volatility. We've de-risked investors by giving them their capital back, but that's enough. We didn't invest in Uniswap or Flow for two years. We invested in these so that five, six years from now, the TVLs and the activity on the Flow blockchain and the partnerships with the NFL and what have you are going to be 20 times what they are today. So we're going to hold on until then and we don't care.
0: So in short, two different philosophies there to deal with this volatility. Do you have a bias towards one or the other? Yes, I do. I don't think,
1: when you're sitting on 10 and 15 Xs and 20 Xs, 30 Xs, and you have a liquid portfolio of assets, just think of it as a traditional venture fund. Say that I was a traditional venture fund in 2018, and for some reason, like most of my companies IPO'd, and I now held these companies, and I could liquidate and I was sitting on the 20, 30X range. I would want them to distribute a fair amount in my mind. I would like them to distribute more than one or two X. I would like them to distribute five X or six X. That way the investor has locked in a historically amazing return and then has the option for much higher upside. And the reason I feel this way is because I do honestly feel that there are massive cycles here and the gains of yesterday can be losses tomorrow, and especially in an environment where the central bank printed an insane amount of money, like it's been an unprecedented response as we all know. You take advantage of that when you can. That's my opinion. Several of these folks are just not macro-driven at all.
0: What are you seeing happening in the current environment? in terms of activity of managers and pacing of investments
1: it's strong still so some quick stats here like last year the industry raised about 25 billion or so in capital on the venture side in the year before 2020 the number was 3 billion this first quarter alone the industry raised 10 billion so it's tracking to we'll see how it ends because there's been a sell off recently but It's tracking at a higher number even than 2021. So there's an immense amount of dry powder. And so far, we haven't seen a weakening of the pacing and investment activity. Now, we can talk in six months. Maybe it will be something very different. But right now, it hasn't shown in the crypto space outside of the public market and the liquid tokens. What's for sure is that the industry is better capitalized than ever. So in some ways, like even if there's a softening and valuations go down and there's a bit of a bear market, it should weather it pretty well in my view.
0: When you've put your portfolio together, and I know you have more of a liquid portfolio and a less liquid portfolio, so you maybe talk about both separately, but how have you thought about comprising different strategies into a portfolio as a whole?
1: Yeah. So we think of it both in the open-ended funds and the closed-ended funds. We think of it in a similar way. The way we at a very high level that we think about it is we want to be biased towards early stage. So that is important, especially as fund sizes are growing, you need to find newer managers, right? On the pre-seed and seed side. So it takes quite a bit of work to do that to keep To keep the market cap, if you will, if you want to call it market cap, to keep the market cap of the entire fund down. So we're trying to be more towards the early stages, number one. Number two, we're trying to be somewhat geographically diversified. So the majority of the exposure is in the U.S., of course, but we have quite a bit in Europe and we have some in Asia. And especially in the earlier stages, even though crypto and blockchain are are global the startups are global and distributed most of the time in terms of teams. At the early stages, the sourcing, the geography and with regards to the sourcing matters. Take, for example, So rare and Dapper Labs. So rare is the dapper labs of Europe with European soccer, Dapper Labs, is NBA top shot. Many American funds did dapper labs. Many European funds did the seed round of So rare, not American funds. That's just an example. So you you want to be geographically diversified in that way. And also, now that there's some areas of expertise that have been developed and certain managers have strengths in certain areas, DeFi, blockchain gaming, NFTs on the creator economy, consumer in general, you're starting to see managers who are strong in some of these verticals. You want to put different managers with different strengths into the mix to build a diversified portfolio. So I'd say these are the three ways we are narrowing down the fund universe and making allocations and constructing portfolios.
0: How do you think about the comparative advantages of specialists versus generalists as some of these channels have gotten more developed?
1: Yeah, I would say 2018, 19, everybody was a generalist, although you first saw specialists emerge in decentralized finance from there. That was the first time you saw specialists because it was the first wave of applications really outside of the core tech and the infrastructure. Today, you have funds that have more of a consumer angle or more of a blockchain gaming angle. And I'll give you an example. I mean, we are invested in a fund that focuses 100% on blockchain gaming. They're gamers. Traditional. they've been around the gaming space for many years, investing on the traditional side. And now they paired that expertise with a team they brought from the outside on the blockchain side to fund early stage blockchain gaming startups. We think that managers like that in a vertical like this have an advantage. And why? Talk to entrepreneurs, ask them. The one thing they will tell you is we love the crypto guys. They gave us some of our first checks. I'm talking about the ones that have developed already. However, what we lacked was somebody who had a lot of experience in content, how to design a game, not just the crypto economics. So all of a sudden you have this need for somebody who has that expertise. Same with consumer. When I say consumer, I mean dealing with brands who want to enter the, the metaverse or NFTs, having the distribution and the cloud and the relationships with the NFL or whoever to partner with these startups. Now you have a need for new types of funds in that sense, for some of these verticals, if you
0: will. Where do you see new funds getting developed?
1: Blockchain gaming, for sure. On the consumer side, broadly speaking, and that has a heavy NFT flavor there and decentralized organization, autonomous organization flavor, but with a consumer angle, I think also DeFi is still an area where you need, I think, experts. That has been the case, but it's still the case. But from emerging, I would say blockchain gaming and uh, the consumer side,
0: broadly speaking, right now. How do you think about the value side of that equation? Up until recently, it was really hard to understand the connection between underlying technology and valuation in some of these rounds and some of these projects. And I'm kind of curious how you take your traditional investment hat and then port it over to this space.
1: Yeah, there are all types of crypto assets out there. Bitcoin is one thing. Bitcoin obviously is a form of digital gold. It's a supply-demand-driven method you need to think about. Limited supply, demand, where does it come from? Greeks, Argentinians. I mentioned to you before like my experience with Greece. That's the natural first demand. And then there's demand from people wanting to hedge against the financial system, et cetera. There's no cash flows you can discount. It's more about believing in this emergence of this new internet type of asset that has these properties. There are several like that, but they're also governance tokens. Take Uniswap as a governance token, the Uni token, or other types of DeFi tokens. Effectively, they give governance rights on a platform that performs a service to the holders of it. And either today or in the future, they can give also economic power to these governance token holders in the same way that equity would. So Uniswap, what's the value it's offering? It's a decentralized exchange. The way I can go to Coinbase, I can go to Uniswap and exchange tokens or USDC. I get charged for that like I would at Coinbase. The difference is that the money goes to the token holders and the market makers and the liquidity providers, not market makers in this case. You can, in theory, do a pretty simple discounted cash flow analysis on that and figure out a value. And as digital assets expand, and as we have a metaverse in the future with functioning economies and around the metaverse, I don't see how it would be different from the physical world.
0: Now, one of the things that's happened, particularly last year, maybe the last two years, is anyone who was in the space for a while has had just monstrous returns, at least on paper curious about what you've learned of the gps and their behavior and response to almost unprecedented windfall type of earnings it's a study in human behavior it's a study in human behavior because you've had this
1: massive gold rush in a period of 2-3 years where folks who had 10 million 20 million dollar funds now have a billion dollar funds if they've made distribution or if they have an open-ended structure, they probably are now worth hundreds of millions. There are some of these folks who are worth hundreds of millions at this point. They're 30 years old. It is my general belief that you truly understand people in two situations. In crisis and when things are really good, you see the sides of the people. In crisis, you see you know, whether they have the grit and the persistence and the stamina. Many of these folks have that because it's certainly from the blue chip side because they were in it in deep winter, they believed in it, and they came out strong. so we know they have the grit now with big success though and big money, the question then it's not about it's grit is wanting now their discipline is tested. Do you have the same hunger? Are you gonna go to work in the morning fighting as if you had eight million dollars? and not a billion dollars or if you had zero money in the bank will you do that from what i can sense and gather there's a large number of these guys that are like that others not so much they have clearly softened in a way like i mean they seem more switched off they're living a little bit more large will they do well in the future i don't know we'll have to see maybe They are disciplined and they're just enjoying themselves for a bit. Being from the outside and observing it, it's kind of being like a coach. Because we're coaches, like on the allocator side, we have the perspective of the coach, right? We're at the sidelines watching the game and watching the players and their personalities. They're immersed into their game. But you have the ability to observe things.
0: What do you think are the remaining Systemic risks to the ecosystem. Now that Bitcoin has stayed at a strong price, even you know if it's volatile for a long time, a lot of people would say the longer that Bitcoin isn't zero, the less likely it is that it will ever be zero. I'm kind of curious more broadly, a lot of us evolved in the security and the infrastructure behind the blockchain. Where do you still get concerned about systemic risk? Yes. There's still a lot of risk
1: in the space. Just to be clear, this is early stage. It's an experimentation and iteration. Leverage is one thing in the system, especially decentralized finance. You've seen that several occasions with unwindings of leverage and massive sell-offs. There are smart contract risks that still exist. There are hacking risks. Although Bitcoin and Ethereum The big chains have not been hacked, and they can't really be hacked. I mean, it's going to be really hard. You've seen side chains being hacked and bridges. All of these things are systemic risks to the space. Leverage, hacking risk. The counter argument is that with code and software, you can be much more efficient. That's great. But on the other hand, there's these systemic risks, and hopefully the industry grows over time, learns over time and gets stronger. That's what has been happening actually, historically. I remember back when Mt. Gox blew up, which was an exchange, many folks thought the crypto space was over. How could an exchange like lose everything? And then you had Coinbase and now you have all these institutional custodians and, and exchanges. Hopefully, you're going to see the space mature in several of these systemic risk areas. So these are two, leverage and hacking risk. And then regulatory risk, I don't think it's systemic anymore. I could be wrong. I think it was systemic in 2018. You could have seen some really aggressive action against crypto back then. Now, how can it be? like? I think 30, 40 million of Americans hold some sort of crypto they're public companies who are crypto companies. It's a major part of American wealth and global wealth. Senators and Congress people are are being actually campaign financed by some of these folks. I think it's going to be a constructive dialogue from the regulatory side with overshoots in the meantime, but not systemic anymore. That's my best take on it.
0: When you speak to an investor who's Close. Hasn't invested in the space, but they're clearly done some work and they're close. I'm curious what the tipping point is that either gets them over the edge or creates continued hesitation.
1: I feel that the best introduction to the space that has had the highest hit rate, if you will, in terms of investors who are considering it, is the following. What is the internet? You start with what is the internet? And the internet is a decentralized system of computers that share information globally. It's a global network. And we saw how this decentralized system of information sharing created entirely new business models that were not available before. Mobile, of course, was another key moment. Here, I think when you start by talking about the internet and then talking about blockchain as the internet of value, because what are underlying L1 blockchains? They're global networks of computers global settlement layers. They're open source, and they're kind of like a natural extension of the global information network. The world functions in two ways, information and value. And now you have the value component. So when you start this way, I think people take notice, and then they understand that this, yes yeah, sure, it's speculative, but it could potentially be massive. And then they understand that it's a part of technology. Then they understand that software engineers all over the world are working on this, like they did work for Facebook in 2006 and seven. And once they realize that, they say it's risky, but I need to have exposure to this because there could be some massive outcomes. As
0: you're looking out over the next few years, what do you have your eye on in the manager community?
1: So, spending a lot of time meeting with uh, smaller emerging funds. I think we've met around 250 managers at this point on the venture side. On the earlier stages, I think I mentioned that you're seeing the blue chip guys sailing away from the early stages with the fund sizes. So, we've been focused on finding the new seed managers, pre seed managers, etc. Um, I think. That's number one. Number two, I think as this space evolves and in ways that we can't even envision yet, more areas of expertise will develop. And we want to be on top of that. DAOs, for example, is a big area. Decentralized autonomous organizations. They can do all sorts of things. There are some managers who are really dabbling into the DAO space, for example, broadly speaking. We want to keep on an eye also on other emerging categories, like we saw gaming, and then we saw a natural fit between traditional people who had traditional gaming expertise and bringing on blockchain expertise. We want to see more areas like that as the space evolves and go in early, be the first check in some of these things.
0: In some areas of asset management, larger funds have continued to win. So you could think of like platform hedge funds compared to smaller, long, short hedge funds. How do you see that dynamic playing out? I mean, you've clearly said you're favoring the early stage funds and some of the elite funds are now big. As the space grows, why is it that you think that the smaller funds is a better place to play going forward? It's math. It boils down to math. Uh, It's
1: as simple as that. And I'll give you an example. The way we think about it at Accolade, not just on the crypto side, but on the venture side as well, is what's the average ownership? What's the fund size? I'll give you a theoretical example. Say you you own on average 5% of a network and your fund is a $50 million fund. It's just a theoretical example because valuations obviously are going to be the ultimate determinant of your ownership. But let's say you have a 5% average ownership and a $50 million fund. You need a $1 billion outcome, one unicorn to return your fund. You have 5% ownership of a network and your fund is $500 million. Again, theoretical example. You need $10 billion. If you look at the range of outcomes in venture, I mean, there's a very small group of 10 billion outcomes. There's a small group of a billion dollar outcomes. There's a wide range of 500 million dollar outcomes. So you're stacking your odds in your favor. If you have high ownership on a smaller fund size, you're stacking the odds in your favor. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'll beat the big guys because they could have the Solanas of the world in there and crush you. That's possible. But we're talking about probabilities here, and we're talking about asymmetric types of outcomes. And venture is a big game of probability, in my mind. So would a small fund underperform a large fund? In many cases, they would, yeah. They might not have the billion-dollar outcome. They might have gone into a terrible set of deals. But what we're trying to do is, first of all, have a balance of both. When I said we're looking at the earlier stages, what I mean is we're looking more at the early stages because the ships are sailing away from the earlier stages. And we just want to keep it balanced.
0: Hi, right, Marcos, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: Reading, 100%. Ask my wife. She'll tell you, you know, I disappear and read And all I need is a book and some quiet time. So whenever I have the chance, I read about any topic that I can get my hands on. It's not as easy these days to do that because there's no time, but it's by far my biggest hobby.
0: What's your biggest personal pet peeve?
1: I would say hubris.
0: Yeah, simple enough. How about on the investment side?
1: My biggest pet peeve on the investment side, hubris again.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life?
1: There were two individuals during my days at Cambridge Associates that had a very important effect on my career and my thinking. I can name them, you know, one was David Chukis and the other is Jim Bell, also at Cambridge. I worked with both of them when I was a younger consultant and their morality, ethos, the way they thought about investing. All these things were very important to me. So I singled them out.
0: What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it?
1: The biggest mistake I made was, I think, prior to researching crypto and taking a deeper dive, is I didn't take enough risk. I think the transformational moment in my life was when I saw the Greek crisis. I go back to that. And I saw that even if you think you're safe, you still might have a lot of risk. So why not take it?
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: To be level-headed and humble is number one. To not to give up, number two. I think that is something my dad was great at, and he instilled that philosophy and discipline in me. If you're down, you get up and you go on. And that is massively important in life.
0: Hi, right, Marcos, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I would say that the
1: bad times don't last forever and that you hang in there and the good times come and it's all cycles. There were times when I've been down at times during my career or life I thought that there wouldn't be a recovery or or things wouldn't get better. They do. Just hang in there. It's what like Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> it's wise words. Okay,
0: Marcos, thanks so much for taking the time. Really insightful. Thank you very much, Ted. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.